What's the greatest benefit of being a sannyasi? I'll answer it for me on a personal level, but it's important to realize that there isn't one right path. Each of us has a different dharma to fulfill. And so while those of us who have taken vows of sannyas, sannyas is the, the vows of renunciation. Sannyas is an, an order into which one is initiated. It's the, when you see the orange clothes like this, it's the, the monkhood or nunhood of the, the Hindu tradition. And so, so on that level, on the religious level, it's seen as the, the highest level that one attains. But that doesn't mean that prior to the last phase of your life, that's necessarily everyone's dharma. And interestingly, in the scriptures, the vast majority of both divine manifestations, divinity on earth, so whether it's Lord Krishna, whether it's Lord Ram, of the sages, the rishis, the vast majority of them are actually married. And I think the reason for that is to dispel any myth that you have to renounce the world in order to attain enlightenment or in order to attain the heights of spiritual progress. For me, the greatest benefit of it, and I think probably the reason that for those of us for whom it is their dharma, that we are drawn to it so deeply, is it gives us the ability to really have a single-minded path. If you are in a family and you've got a husband or a wife and children, there's an inevitable conflict, even if it's just within you. Because there's always, there's always a choice. Every minute is a choice of, do I spend time meditating and doing my puja, doing my spiritual practice, doing my seva, or do I spend my time playing ball in the park with my son or going for a walk or hanging out with my kids or doing their homework or cooking them food or with my spouse? And for me, the benefit of being able to live a life of sannyasis, it makes all of that much easier. You know, it's like I'm a... I'm a vegan. I drink milk here in the ashram that comes from our very happy, very well-fed and well-loved cows. But otherwise, I don't, I don't drink milk anywhere outside. And so when I travel, I'm vegan. And when you go most places in the world and you're handed a menu of what to eat as a vegan, 
there's very few options usually. And sometimes I'll be with someone who will say, God, you know, I'm so sorry, you know, or the, the waiter or the waitress, when you say you're a vegan, oh, I'm so sorry, well, you know, we could make you a plate of sauteed vegetables. And I always say, no, it's great. It makes it so much easier if I look at a menu and there's only one thing I can eat. <laughs> I don't have to think about it. It's actually so much easier than looking at a menu of 40 different things that you have to decide what you feel like eating. I mean, here it's so great. You just sit down to eat and whatever our beautiful cook has decided to cook is what dinner is or what lunch is. In 23 years, I've never had him once say to me, what do you feel like eating? What would you like? Here's all the items I have. What would you like? He just cooks. And so it's really nice because then all of that extra energy that otherwise has to go into thinking about what do I feel like eating tonight? What should I order in? What should I get at the restaurant? What should I cook? All of that extra energy gets to be spent on something else. What am I going to eat? Exactly what he serves me. And in the same way, being a sannyasi is very similar, where it's, what am I going to do? Well, when you don't have the relationships that are constantly pulling and you have to make this conflict or that decision, it makes things much more simple. When you don't have other other duties, other responsibilities that are pulling on you. It's not meditate or. It's meditate. It's not seva or, it's seva. And there isn't someone saying, why don't you spend enough time with me? You know, I just, just come on, do you really have to do so much seva? Come on, do you really have to meditate so much? which one could only imagine in a family these things happen. And so for me, probably the greatest logistic benefit of a, a life of renunciation, a life of celibacy, a life where it's just about God, is you get to go at it single-pointedly without these pulls. There's no question of should I or shouldn't I. Because there's a, a very clear set of rules, of restrictions, of vows. You know exactly what you should and shouldn't. And not only is it should or shouldn't, but it's a matter of actually having taken vows before God not to. And so it, it clears away a lot of the extra, extra noise in the environment. And that being said, though, of course, that noise is very, very beautiful. If 
your dharma is to live a householder life. That, that extra noise of the relationships, of the families, of the duty is beautiful and wonderful, if that is your dharma. But on a personal level, for me, that's been a great, great benefit. The other benefit is no matter how much we try to free ourselves of any identity, and that's a common theme. If you come to satsang frequently, it's a common theme that I talk about is letting go of identities because they do tend to kill us. They suffocate us. We identify as so much in our lives, our roles, our titles, our careers, our physical appearance, the color of our skin, our wealth. So most of us move through the world thinking about ourselves in a certain way. I'm the smart one, or I'm the stupid one, or I'm the I'm the popular one, I'm the beautiful one, or I'm the one nobody likes. Either way, these identities really suffocate us. Nonetheless, as we try to let them go, some little shadow, some little sprinkling of a concept of who you are stays with us not in the depths of meditation by any means, but as you, as you move through the world, there is an awareness. And being able to have that identity of sannyasi, of someone whose life is dedicated to God, has been a great benefit for me. It's not about identifying with the world. It's about every single time I look down and I see this color. Every time I put my hand up to my head and have to be careful not to mess up my tilak that's here on my third eye, every time I catch a glimpse of my reflection somewhere in the orange sari with the tilak, you remember, oh yeah, I've dedicated my life to God. Oh yeah, this is who I am. And so it's not about an identity to the world, but it is about an identity to the self of remembering who you are and what your life is dedicated to. Otherwise, there is a lot of noise in the world and there's a lot of pulls, people, culture. I mean, there's so much pulling at you saying, here's who you should be. Here's what you should be. Here's how you should think about yourself. Here's how you measure up to others. And catching a glimpse of the saffron color, catching a glimpse or a feeling of the tilak on the face and remembering, oh, wait, I'm someone who has consciously, purposely renounced attachment to all of that in favor of God. And so I think for me that's the, the great benefit. 
That being said, of course, as I began to circle back, there is absolutely no requirement at all, either in present day or going back to scriptural times, that one renounce the world in order to have a very deep and fulfilling spiritual path. What isn't negotiable, what has to be renounced, is your attachment to all of the false self. So if you are in the householder world, in the family dharma, no problem. Use that. Use those relationships to connect with God. You don't have to identify as the richest husband at the party or the most beautiful wife at the party or the, you know, just because you happen to be a husband or a wife and you happen to be at a party doesn't mean you have to lose yourself into false identities. Doesn't mean that you have to go along with all of the noise in the environment. The householder life as a path of spiritual awakening is not about agreeing to the illusion of I am the wife or I am the husband or I am the mother, I am this and it's all about, you know, who's going to be queen of this house, me or your mother-in-law, or me or my mother-in-law, your mother. It's about how can I see God through these loved ones? How can I serve God through these loved ones? So, okay, in the balance of seva versus householder tasks, okay, there may be less time for seva. If you've got a put food on the table. How can putting food on the table become your seva? How can I see my family members as the divine so that grocery shopping, cooking, doing dishes becomes not something that pulls me away from my spiritual path, not something I have to rush through so I can meditate, but so it actually becomes my meditation. How can this relationship with a husband or a wife or children or parents become a way of connecting to God? Instead of seeing them as those who bring home A's or bring home F's or clean up their room or don't clean up their room or do their chores or don't do their chores or come home on time or don't come home on time. How can I see them as divine, as God in the form of my spouse, my children, my in-laws? God coming in a form to teach me in a very special way. So regardless of which path is your dharma, all the paths, are about go to God. It's just go to God through renunciation, through celibacy, through a conscious decision that that is going to be my relationship. 
or it's go to God through other relationships. Either way, it's about go to God. And of course, even if your dharma is the householder life, according to the Indian spiritual tradition, the final phase of our life should be the sannyasi phase anyway. There's four ashrams of life that we're given. The first is brahmacharya. That's up to about 25. It's the traditional years of studying. That's the time that we get our education, we focus on our studies. Then about 25 to about 50 is your householder phase. Get a job, make money, have a family, raise the kids, get the kids settled. Then is your vanprast ashram stage, which is the stage of pulling back. Kids are grown, they're settled. Now they're having their own kids. They don't need you. You're retired from work. Those are the years that people start pulling away, engaging more and more in seva, more and more in spiritual service. And then ultimately, the last phase of life, traditionally it was 75 to 100, but I've heard it redone as people are no longer living to the yogi ages of a hundred so frequently that it's now instead of phases of 25, phases of 20. But either way, the final phase is sannyasi, which is okay. You've done all that. In your landing phase of life, as Pooja Swamiji calls it, how to get closer to God because you know that's where you're going and how to prepare, how to get very close, how to realize that this, this body, whatever is left of it, whatever strength I've got left, whatever days I've got left, whatever abilities I've got left, number one, it's bonus. And number two, how do I realize it's been given to me just as a bonus? to serve. So regardless of where you start, everyone experiences or should experience the sannyasi phase at some point in their life.